This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Legal Talk Network. You are listening to Coast to Coast, the top-rated legal show on the Internet. I'm Craig Williams in Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Well, today on Coast to Coast, we're going to uh, talk about a topic that uh, I would imagine, unless you've been living in a cave for the last couple of years, you've heard about, but you may not know as much about it as you think or as you should, and that's e-discovery. Well, if you've been living in a cave, it doesn't matter, Bob, but uh, e-discovery means it's an electronic discovery, and it refers to a process where electronic data is searched, located, and secured with the intent of using it as evidence in a case. Of course, e-discovery could be carried out on on a single computer, but where it gets complicated and complex is when you're working with uh, an entire company's computer network, uh, as the Enron case and some other cases recently have uh, helped us uh, see, and uh, where this court-ordered or government-approved uh, hacking is also can be considered e-discovery. Well, virtually any kind of stored data stored on your computer can become evidence, documents, images, calendars, spreadsheets, and even audio files. If it's in there, it can be used in a case. Of course, email is a especially valuable source of evidence. Uh, most people are a lot less careful in emails than they are in handwritten memos and letters, and there's been uh, any number of smoking guns discovered in people's emails. Well, Bob, let's get to it. We've invited two e-discovery experts to lead our discussion today. First, we're going to welcome to the show attorney Eric Meyer. Eric is an attorney with Dilworth Paxson in Philadelphia, where he's a member of the firm's labor and employment group, and he also practices more general commercial litigation and, uh, in fact, produces his own podcast on labor and employment issues. Uh, welcome to the program, Eric. Uh, thank you. And our next expert is Stephen Prignano. Stephen is a partner and member of the class action and mass media, excuse me, mass litigation group of Edwards, Engel, Palmer, and Dodge. He's the co-chair of the firm's e-discovery team. Welcome to the show, Steve. Good to be with you. That's Angel. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> Steve, have we, have we defined e-discovery accurately? How do you define it? I, I think you have. Um, you know, basically um, any any form of data that requires a computer to be read um, is electronic in nature. And any time you get a, re a request targeting um, that form of data um, in litigation, we generally refer to that uh, as e-discovery. And so I think you okay. basically got it right it's a, in a vast amount of stuff. Why has e-discovery become so important, Eric? Because I, I, I think it's so prevalent, you can't, you can't avoid it. You have employees who are using uh, computers at work a lot of them have laptops so they use computers on the road they use their computer they can uh, access their work computer their work network from home PDAs uh, blackberries cell phones it's it's everywhere you turn uh, I mean how often do you uh, send a letter to a client or opposing counsel more often than not I find myself sending email so uh, it's just it's so prevalent and common you can't get away from it 
Well, I would suggest that there's hardly uh, hardly a lawsuit these days that where there uh, you shouldn't at least be thinking about whether there's an e-discovery component. Is that fair to say? Oh, I think that's completely fair to say. In fact, I would think it's naive to think that there's not going to be some kind of e-discovery component to a lawsuit. I think in most cases you're going to find that uh, standard um, discovery requests now will define uh, the types of documents and data they seek uh, by reference in part to electronic discovery. So I haven't seen many cases these days without some form of uh, request going to e-discovery. And in fact, the the proposals to the new uh, Federal Rules of Civil Procedure that are going to hopefully uh, become finalized in December of 2006 uh, specifically reference e-discovery. So it, it's not only on the attorneys' minds, but it's it's on the, uh, the rulemakers and the courts' minds. Right. Now, as I understand it, the, the Supreme Court has approved a new set of rules governing e-discovery, and that, that they become effective on December 1st. Um, and that's what you're referencing, unless Congress takes some action uh, to invalidate them or, or to change them. Or is that correct? that is that is my understanding as well? Um, let me let me ask you. I mean, how does a how does a lawyer get started in this? I mean, what is a lawyer? A lawyer's involved in a case, and he knows there's e-discovery issues. How did they uh, begin to explore these issues? Where do they start? Basically, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Well, I'll throw it out to either of you. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, basically, uh, first of all, I think, as has been pointed out before, you can't really avoid them. They're going to be in almost every case. And so it really behooves um, litigators uh, who are facing these issues to uh, first become aware of them, uh, you know, make sure that they're paying attention to the form of requests they're getting, the wording of those requests, how the uh, various documents and other materials are being defined in those requests, and recognize first that uh, many of these requests uh, are going to electronic forms of evidence. And if they are, uh, you really need to um, uh, alert your client to that fact, because unless the lawyer who's getting these requests recognizes it in the first instance, uh, you're not going to be in a position to pass the correct advice on to the client. So the, uh, first, the first step is to recognize that they are uh, coming in, in, in into uh, cases more frequently, and you just can't simply treat uh, these uh, document requests as uh, routine, uh, standard form uh, request seeking document discovery any longer. Eric, how does someone who's never handled uh, and is very unfamiliar with computers and so forth, that, that when they see the word e-discovery, their eyes glaze over, where can you go to get a primer? Uh, I would cer certainly recommend that any attorney read the uh, five Zubalaki versus UBS Warburg decisions out of the Southern District of New York. Um, that is the, as far as I know, the first uh, case, if not the first big case, to really address one's responsibilities, not just uh, party but attorney, in terms of what to produce and, and um, how, it, how an attorney needs to monitor electronic discovery. Um, and there, there, if you if you just plug Zubalaki into Google, Z U B U L A K E, you will get not only the cases but several references to the cases and several good articles about um, how to go about handling e-discovery. Well, Eric, I've 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 actually read those cases. I'm sad to say, and uh, you know they they talk a lot about uh, the responsibilities and, and and what needs to be done, but the mechanics that, that Craig kind of alludes to aren't there. And I, I we were we were just we did a program two weeks ago at ABA Tech Show. One of the things we were talking about there were was the large number of e-discovery vendors who were uh, uh, exhibiting and speaking there. 
Um, how is it important to bring in outside consultants or outside vendors in this area? And if so, how do you go about uh, selecting the right one for your case? I think it may be, depending on the nature of the case and depending on the nature of the request, um, certainly in larger cases where a great deal of electronic discovery um, has been requested, particularly if it's in uh, locations that aren't necessarily all that accessible or in forms of media that aren't necessarily all that accessible, having a vendor come in to provide some advice uh, to the lawyer and to the client, especially if the lawyer is not all that familiar uh, with the mechanics of retrieving that type of data, can be very useful. Uh, so as far as um, how do you select them, uh, there are many out there right now who are doing a fine job and, and advertise their wares and are, are pretty well known. Um, one of the real considerations becomes cost because this whole area can get extremely costly uh, depending on the nature of the request and the work that needs to be done. So you have to be very careful um, in selecting a vendor uh, to understand what the cost might be. Steve, from your experience, are you seeing most of this stuff being handled in-house, or is it being done with outside consultants? Yeah, again, it varies. Um, much depends on the scope of the work. Um, for instance, at our firm, we try to handle as many of these um, re requests in-house as we possibly can, and we've built up a pretty substantial internal capacity to do that. But there are some cases that are so large that it will exceed our own capacity, and we'll need to go out uh, outside the firm to, uh, to bring in other help. Um, uh, for the smaller cases, certainly we managed to do all that uh, in-house, and, and, and even for some of the larger matters, we're able to do that in-house. But um, it, it's, it's um, no exaggeration to say that uh, folks often underestimate how much in um, resources uh, these types of cases demand, both um, uh, in personnel and in um, computing hardware. It's uh, really extraordinary. What kind of hardware do you need to be able to handle these kind of requests in-house as a, as a lawyer? Well, you, need to, you often need to process um, large amounts of data. Uh, sometimes the data is not all that accessible, as I've mentioned. Uh, you may need to, to, to bring data off of storage devices, uh, uh, and sometimes those devices can only, uh, those media can only be read by uh, certain forms of programs that you may not have available. So uh, certainly it's a, it's, it's a capacity problem with respect to your computer hardware, but it's also a software problem often with respect to uh, what kinds of software you have in-house and what, can, what, what you can actually access and read off, of, for instance, clients' uh, materials. All of those things are, are, are things you need to assess right up front to know whether you need the assistance of an outside vendor because they'll often have libraries, for instance, of different software applications that can be used um, to, to, to read uh, data off older applications or older machines. Gentlemen, I'm encountering that problem here right now. I have a client, or we have a client, I should say, that has produced um, old emails in an old Lotus Notes format. Um, and not only do we not have a, a Lotus Notes in-house, but with the format that they produce, it is such an old version of Lotus Notes that it's almost impossible to um, uh, uncover and pull out the, the relevant information, so we've had to outsource it here. I mean, it, it happens every once in a while. You like to keep it in-house, but like Steve said, sometimes it's, uh, you just don't have the in-house capability to do it. Well, I mean, I've read of cases in which the e-discovery costs alone are in excess of a million dollars, and I, I imagine there are some where it's even more than that. I mean, is there a cost-benefit analysis that has to be performed here? I mean, does, does a lawyer have to sit down with a client and say, uh, you know, how much is it appropriate to spend on e-discovery in a case like this? 
Yes, I, I think the bottom line is, though, that, that there are mechanisms, and the Zubalaki case sets forth a mechanism to determine um, who's going to pay what in the end, and a lot of it's contingent upon how much relevant information is produced and how much information is available from other sources or in other medium. Um, but the bottom line is, I, I would err on the side of um, not running afoul of a, a production request and, and, and producing, and unfortunately, that's that's going to mean that, that or that could mean um, a large expense for the client. It's just a it's, it's a fact. So, are you seeing the dump truck style of litigation coming into play? Because our strategy is really changing as a consequence of, uh, of e-discovery. Does it mean you just get buried with uh, paperwork and with uh, reviewing data? Oh, I, I think that's absolutely true, and we're seeing that in our own practice here. Uh, I think that uh, more so for plaintiffs. Uh, in terms of tra- changing strategies, you know, it's much it's much easier to make these requests than it is to comply with them, and I think plaintiffs' counsel understand that. And uh, we we have seen a shift in strategy, and uh, you see more emphasis on this type of discovery, um, just just for the aggravation factor, if nothing else. Um, it, it 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 becomes a huge burden uh, on most corporations, given the amount of uh, electronic data they produce, to catalog that to. Um, access it and respond uh, to some of these requests, and it becomes a pressure point in litigation. And, and I think you're seeing, you know, in recent times, some cases whose outcome have actually been determined not so much on the merits of the case, but rather um, uh, on issues having to do with uh, uh, the defendant's uh, failure to comply with electronic discovery requests. Are we going to be seeing some changes in corporations' storage strategy? Are they going to stop storing so much stuff so that this doesn't become such an issue? Again, that's another danger. Um, I think that in general, it, the better practice is if you don't have a business or regulatory need to keep the information, it's better to not store it. But you need to have a, a, a pretty good document retention policy in place that covers specifically electronic documents. And uh, it's it's surprising, but we're finding that uh, many corporations, uh, many large defendants, don't have an adequate policy in place. And, so it becomes very problematic once you get into litigation that you're finding uh, all of this electronic data out there that you uh, or the client didn't even realize was there. And really. it's not only having that policy, it, it's not deviating from the policy. I mean, if, if, a, if a large corporation has a document retention policy but then starts uh, deleting uh, old files and backup tapes um, at shorter intervals, that can raise a red flag, especially, obviously, if the, if the case goes to some kind of litigation. Eric, I'm just curious about uh, e-discovery in the employment context where you practice. It seems to me that there are any number of situations I could imagine uh, in employment litigation where uh, electronic documents or email could be uh, critical to a case. Are there any special considerations in employment cases or any special uh, advice you tend to give your clients with respect to uh, e-discovery? Um, I w- not not necessarily. Um, uh, I do here at Dilworth. We work on both sides. Generally, we're with management, but I have been on some 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 of the plaintiffs' uh, cases where obviously it's a lot easier. But on the management side, no, I think uh, many of the same overarching uh, general instructions, litigation holds, um, meeting with key players to uh, get a sense of of what their retention policies are. Um, and advising who needs to keep what. I don't. I don't think there's anything too specific uh, with the employment context. Only 
except that every once in a while you may find that, that proverbial smoking gun. So there may be some kind of, you hope not, but there may be some kind of motivation on the employer's part to delete that data. But um, in terms of advice, no, I, I think it's pretty standard in the employment context as it is to other, uh, other uh, litigation contexts. I wonder if, uh, Steve, if you have looked at the proposed uh, rules, or I guess the rules now adopted by the Supreme Court, and uh, if you have, uh, if you could uh, comment on what they might mean for e-discovery in the future. Sure. There have been some significant changes in the proposed rules, and I think one of the most significant changes is the uh, treatment of uh, what material is discoverable and under what circumstances. Um, and uh, first of all, as Eric pointed out earlier, the new federal rules uh, specifically define a class of electronic documents as subject to discovery. That's um, not too different from what's uh, happened in the past, um, but uh, the, the rules are very specific on that now. And, and, and also, uh, with respect to what becomes discoverable in the electronic world, there's a new class of documents um, or electronic documents that's been created, those that are not reasonably accessible. Um, uh, a party in response to an electronic document uh, discovery request now um, must produce any uh, electronic documents that are readily accessible and reasonably accessible, and uh, the, the requesting party has a, a right to the production of those materials, but the responding party now has the ability to designate, designate certain um, electronic data as not reasonably accessible and does not have um, a requirement to produce those immediately. Uh, the burden then shifts to the propounding party um, uh, to file a motion to uh, have the responding party demonstrate why um, it has designated certain electronic uh, data as not reasonably accessible. And then there's a hearing, and ultimately the court uh, may issue a ruling in which it will uh, either order the production of that data or not. Um, and what I think this really applies to um, most specifically is the concept of uh, uh, backup tapes and data stored on backup tapes, because often that's where the big fight is. Uh, the data on backup tapes is, uh, is, is stored in a unique format. Uh, it's very difficult to search, and it's very costly to retrieve. And uh, I, what I'm anticipating is as these rules uh, take effect, responding parties will more frequently now designate as not readily accessible material stored on backup tapes. Eric and Steve, we're going to take a short break right now, but when we come back, we'll talk about the Supreme Court's effect on e-discovery and the future of e-discovery and follow up with some final thoughts. Coast to Coast comes back in just 60 seconds. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free.
A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. We're discussing the new vast universe of e-discovery. Our guests are Eric Meyer, attorney with Dilworth Paxson, and Stephen Prignano, a partner and member of the Class Action and Mass Litigation Group at Edwards, Angel, Palmer, and Dodge. Eric, uh, I wonder what, what's your take on, on the new rules? Uh, are, are they likely to uh, increase litigation? Are they likely to smooth e-discovery? Uh, how do you perceive them? Well, I think it's nice that, that the rulemakers have finally specifically addressed e-discovery. Um, like Steve pointed out before, uh, the right to object to certain e-discovery is, is definitely going to uh, create a lot more uh, discovery motions in court, um, though I'll add that, that the advisory committee examples that they provide um, regarding objections to e-discovery being... Um, unreasonable or, or, or difficult, um, specifically relate to not just backup tapes, but backup tapes that are um, not indexed, organized, or susceptible to electronic searching. So if there are backup tapes that are cataloged, um, those are going to be uh, discoverable, and you're not going to have much luck, I suspect, going to court trying to uh, fight or trying to uh, get an objection sustained to certain discovery. Um, but I think overall, uh, hopefully it'll just, it'll just streamline the process and um, at least put parties on notice that uh, electronic discovery is fair game. I think a lot of parties, you see those, uh, you receive interrogatories or document requests and you see these five or six pages of instructions and you know, we all know how much those instructions are worth. Um, but from now on, they'll see those instructions and where it says documents, and that includes emails and backup tapes and so on and so forth, they'll think twice about not producing it, and they'll take it to heart and, and produce that documentation and that data. It's going to be a little more burdensome, but I think at the same time it's a, it's a more overall streamlined process. Steve, most judges have really never had uh, much experience with electronic discovery because they've been on the bench for a while. Do you see some level of judicial restraint in terms of ordering uh, this type of discovery to be produced? Yeah, I think it depends. It's a great question. It, it, it depends, and, I, and, and really it depends on the level of uh, experience of the judge uh, here before. Uh, if they've had uh, experience with this in the past, I think you tend to see a little bit more restraint because... Uh, when you get involved in this process, it becomes pretty clear that even um, what appear to be benign requests actually are uh, in enormously difficult and burdensome to comply with. And once the court understands uh, all of the technical issues surrounding uh, some of these requests, uh, courts generally begin to understand uh, what it's about and, what, and what's going on and tend to be a little bit more restrictive. 
many other judges who haven't been exposed to this sort of discovery before um, often, at least initially, take the approach that, well, if it's on your client's computer system, you ought to be able to access it with the touch of a button. That's the sort of perception that some courts have about accessibility of data on computer systems, but often nothing could be further from the truth. And so it's a process of educating the court and the judge about uh, exactly the, what are the technical problems with responding to uh, these sorts of requests. Well, other than listening to our podcast, uh, what do you suggest in terms of educating judges? Well, I think that uh, judges certainly will, uh, will be educated as these cases come up more frequently, but uh, the same resources are available to the bench as they are, are to the bar, and there are many, many good seminars out there right now that are being put on, and uh, in fact, many of the vendors are quite active in um, uh, putting on seminars that explain in, in, in great detail uh, uh, some of the technical challenges surrounding uh, the production of electronic uh, uh, documentation. Uh, there are also many good resources out there right now in print and on the web uh, that, that do the same thing. And uh, several treatises now uh, being published in the electronic uh, discovery area that are, that are quite good and I think will be, uh, will be useful to folks. Steve, you're co-chair of your firm's e-discovery team, and uh, I'm wondering, in your experience, uh, you know, if, if, if we could learn from our mistakes, are, are there mistakes that, that you tend to see, not necessarily among your own firm's lawyers, but, but lawyers make in their approach or, or uh, uh, methodology e-discovery? I, I think the key thing is often the failure to recognize at the outset um, the fact that electronic data is being requested and then to understand that that request may, in fact, implicate uh, vast volumes of information, um, and, and then the need to educate oneself about the manner in which the client has actually stored and cataloged that information, uh, where you need to go to get it, uh, and, and, and then uh, the review process in terms of producing it. Um, the, so I think one of the critical failings most often is not appreciating the nature of one of these requests when it's first seen and educating yourself uh, about what it really is. You need to be in a position to advise the client properly, and you can't do that if you've missed the issue at the outset. Well, Craig mentioned the fact that a lot of judges are not necessarily uh, fully uh, experienced in this area, and I assume that remains the case with, with a number of lawyers. Is, is it more important for a law firm these days to have kind of an IT person or somebody on staff who can consult on these kinds of issues? We actually do as part of our electronic discovery team. Uh, when we conceived this team, we decided that we were going to make it a, a, multi, a multiple disciplinary team that would include not only the attorneys and, and the paralegals that are involved in electronic discovery, but also our IT professionals so that they could advise us on some of the technical issues. Well, Eric, can you uh, wrap up here and give us some final thoughts about uh, e-discovery and your overall impression of what lawyers and judges should be doing? Well, I think if, if lawyers and judges don't know yet that e-discovery doesn't simply mean email, they're going to know soon enough. And I think Steve touched on some, some great points. It's uh, every lawyer and, and judge's obligation to really go out and try and educate oneself on uh, what e-discovery really means and what is involved in the processes behind e-discovery. So um, it, this is not something where, where an attorney or judge can rest on his or her laurels. They need to... Uh, be proactive, um, go to seminars, read resources on the web. Of course, it's somewhat somewhat ironic because probably the judge or attorney who's not very good with e-discovery may not also be very attuned to what's on the web, 
But nonetheless, um, it's going to be real hard to practice in the near future and not um, have some kind of issue involving e-discovery. So I think education is the key here. Steve, how about you? Do you see uh, some, as your final thoughts, do you see some type of certification coming down the line for lawyers? Oh, I don't know. I think it's a little bit too early to tell, but one thing is very clear, and this is a new breed of discovery. It's not simply just um, uh, more in terms of volume. It's also different in character, and the way it's practiced is uh, changing and different, and as we've seen, so much so that a, a new amendments to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure have been required to address it. So there's no question that we're getting involved here in a sort of subspecialty of litigation, I think, as we move on that's going to require lawyers to really understand this area and be very adept at both the technical and the legal issues involved. Well, we'd like to get your contact information, so if people do have some questions about e-discovery, they can get in touch with you. Steve, how would our listeners get in touch with you? Well, I can be reached by telephone at area code 401-276-6670 or by email at sprignano, that's S-P-R-I-G-N-A-N-O, at... Uh, EAPDlaw.com. And Eric? Uh, my contact information, uh, our main telephone number here is 215-575-7000. My email address is emeyer, that's E-M-E-Y-E-R, at dilworthlaw.com. And also, they can access information about our firm and uh, listen to a couple of podcasts of ours at www.dilworthlaw.com. And your podcast is on iTunes, too, I think, right? That is correct. It is accessible via iTunes. We have an RSS feed. You can get it on Google, Yahoo, any which way you can think about. You, you can access our podcast. Well, thanks a lot to both of you for participating in our show today. Uh, it's been an interesting discussion, and we appreciate your time and comments. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks very Thank much. you very much, Eric and Steve. Well, Bob, I think that wraps it up for this week. I think that's it, Craig. Uh, good talking to you. Look forward to uh, another time next week. We'll see you next week, Bob. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.